Hello and welcome to The Why podcast, a new series from Think London Business School in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Bruce, and for this episode, my guest is Aaron Cohn-Moliver, Assistant Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School and a former advisor to two committees in the Israeli parliament and to the then head of the opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu. His research focuses on business ethics and responsibility. He teaches strategy to our master's in finance students and the strategic management elective on our executive MBA in Dubai. Today, he's going to talk to us about his paper, Religious Affiliation and Wrongdoing, Evidence from US Nursing Homes. He wrote it with Omandine Odibrazier from Yale School of Management, and it's in the journal Management Science. Aaron, hello. Thanks for coming on to the show. Hi, Cathy. Thanks for having me. Before we get on to this particular paper, let's just set some context. What do we mean by ethics in business? Is it different from things that you should do or what's legal versus what's illegal? Thank you, Cathy. That's a great question because we need to be precise about these things. To study business ethic, we need to have a good understanding of what do we mean by right or appropriate and also what do we mean by business. And why business ethics is not simply just an extension of what we know from moral philosophy about individuals. So many questions. I guess that's the beauty of academia, isn't it? Each thing that you start looking into opens up a whole extra layer of new questions as well. Erin, why are you so interested in this that you've decided to make your area of research? Well, I've always been interested in why people do bad things, especially since everyone around me seems to be a fairly good person, you know, well-intentioned, generous and kind. And so I, I, I distinctly remember opening a newspaper when we were in Gujarat building a field hospital, surrounded by delegations from all the world building field hospitals in Gujarat, and there was some big business scandal happening in Israel. I remember thinking, who are these people? Like, who behaves so badly? And, and why don't I see them around me? So I went to university and tried answering this by studying PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh, that, that didn't help much because after you study economics, you start thinking the other way. Why do we see so few? Like, are the people around me just weird and behave in, in strange ways? Because by rational choice theory, most people who cheat don't get caught. So you, you should always cheat. So that didn't help much. And then I went to do my PhD at Columbia. And the wonderful thing about Columbia is you can freely audit any class you want. So I hung out in statistics and in sociology departments quite a lot. And I started getting a better idea on how to approach the question. And I think the crux of it is that I was asking the wrong question. It's not looking at whether people behave badly or not. It is looking at groups of people, which businesses or organizations, and not at how they behave, but how the rules around them evolve and how they interpret these rules. So instead of asking why people do bad things, it's asking why groups of people do things that someone else thinks is bad at some point. Yeah, that's really interesting. And this research that we're looking at today is about care homes for the elderly in the States and looking at the really awful things that can happen there. People behaving terribly badly, you know, neglect, cruelty, assault, really serious stuff. There was a report in the New York Times last summer about this and how there's a rating system, the star system, so there are rules and regulations in place set up to protect these vulnerable people. But clearly it's not working because you still have these things happening. Why did you look at religious care homes? I'm curious to know. Thanks, Ellie. That's a, 
a bit of a funny question because I was I was interested in the question theoretically and not necessarily in the context. This was the beginning of 2020, and we found this amazing data about neglect and abuse in care homes. This was right pre-pandemic, seven weeks before the pandemic. And the data allows us to answer a question that is very thorny, difficult, statistical question, where when we see bad behaviors by businesses, we don't observe all the businesses that behave badly. We just observe the ones that are getting caught. So there might be things happening inside organizations that make them more likely or less likely to get caught. And this specific data that my amazing co-author collected allowed us to look at two parallel processes that are happening in identifying uh, misconduct in religiously affiliated care homes. Well, in all care homes, actually. One process is just random inspection process. So annually, there's a federal regulation that requires groups of inspectors to go into care homes with a big book, spend a week, and inspect the care homes and detail every violation of the health and safety code they find. And that happens annually for every care home, regardless of where it is, how big it is, or what is the affiliation of the care home. The second process is when someone complains. So you can think of a resident complaining or their family members or even an employee. And the beautiful thing about this data uh, and the system in the U.S. is that if you complain about any misconduct happening in a care home, the same regulatory agency sends pretty much the same number of people with the same book to inspect the care home in the same method as they do when they do the random inspections. And that gave us this beautiful data where you have, on the one hand, uh, random inspections in which you can compare care homes on their actual performance, and this complaint-generated data in which you can see what happens in inspections that are triggered when someone from the organization complains. And what were you looking for in particular? And how did you go about analyzing the data? So religiously affiliated care homes seem to have more of the worst type of violations. And these are really, really, as you mentioned, quite severe cases of neglect and abuse, the most extreme ones. There are a few of those, but they happen more slightly more frequently in religiously affiliated care homes. And that might resonate with some things we hear about religiously affiliated organizations. It doesn't resonate with my familiarity with religious people or religion at all. So if we think about what could be explanations to why we observe religiously affiliated care homes or religiously affiliated organizations having more of the worst type of violations, until now we had two types of explanations. The first is that they actually behave more poorly. And then there's a whole set of explanations on why religious organizations have poorly behaving uh, members. And you can think of authority relationships and so on. There have been a lot of explanations in popular media. So the first explanation is that they behave more poorly. The second explanation is that we expect religiously affiliated organizations to behave a certain way. And so we pay more attention when they behave differently. So we hold them to a higher standard. And that's a general explanation. Sometimes we pay more attention to certain behaviors. Uh, We put our focus on financial institutions, if this is 2007, and look for all of the bad stuff that's happening in financial institutions and might be overlooking high-tech companies. So in this case, we might be expecting high moral standards from religiously affiliated organizations. And so we just 
pay more attention to them. We had a feeling it's neither one of these two explanations. So in these religious care homes, there are fewer violations reported overall, but when they are reported, they're more serious. So there's something about people being less likely to raise the alarm until these small things somehow develop to much worse incidents. Yes, exactly. So there's a, there is a third bucket of explanations that um, we didn't have good research on, and hopefully this is the first one. The third bucket of explanation is that not that these organizations behave more poorly, not that we pay more attention to these organizations, is that something is happening in these groups of people that we call an organization that just makes them less likely to complain. And we know that if you don't complain about small violations, over time they escalate until they become really bad. So it could be that religiously affiliated organizations behave exactly like secular organizations and that regulators pay exactly the same attention to both of them. It's just that something in religiously affiliated organizations make their members less likely to complain. And that just allows violations to worsen before they're detected. So what is it about people in these religious contexts that makes them not speak out when they should? So I will say this is beyond the scope of the paper. We didn't test mechanisms, but we looked for some suggestive evidence of of what we call mechanism. What causes people to complain less in religiously affiliated care homes? And we find evidence for a very interesting one. Religious organizations in the U.S. especially have what we tend to call a strong identity uh, in sociology. Uh, In the U.S., they're allowed to discriminate in hiring, for example. So you're much more likely, if you belong to some religious denomination and go to that care home as a resident, you're much, much more likely to be surrounded by co-religious residents and to have carers who are from the same religion. And we know that that creates a lot of what we call social control. It creates peer-based social control because if you behave a certain way, you think you might be, you know, violating some norms of the group. Like, I'm not going to complain about someone who's an in-group member and so on. And there's also uh, internal controls um, that come with belonging to, to a group. So you think that you'd be sanctioned. and Sanctioned could be just looked at funny, right? It, it's, not, it's not necessarily that you'll be punished by someone else if you complain. And also you feel slightly more bad about complaining. So we find some evidence that that's actually the case in this setting. I thought that was so interesting because at the moment, most organisations, especially with hybrid working and remote, they're trying to give people more sense of belonging and making the organisation something that they're really proud to belong to. So it's not just about the work. But it's interesting to think that, you know, that's something which is mostly good, but there's another side to it potentially. Yes, uh, generally, a sense of belonging and uh, having a identification with the organization is a good thing. Employees give more and are more, they give more to the business, they care more about consumer, they care more about each other, they care more about even, I mean, we just lived through the pandemic, the survival of the organization. So a strong identity is not a bad thing. We tend to ascribe it to businesses. It just has a downside that we've not looked at yet. Organizations with strong identity, and this is the more general point uh, that we can Uh, take from this specific context of care homes, that we might need to pay a little bit more attention to organizations with strong identity, because in these types of organizations, you're less likely to observe whistleblowing. It's less likely to be exposed to outsiders. And we see some evidence that it's even less likely to be exposed to insiders. 
Yeah, because if you feel that you belong to a place, you start feeling protective towards the organisation and you don't want other people to think badly of it and that kind of thing, which obviously can backfire horribly. Yes, and not just the organisation. If you feel a sense of belonging to the organisation, you feel closer to your colleagues. So you're not going to report on them if they do something bad. You're probably not going to tell them either, less likely to tell them. You're definitely not going to report to your line manager and you're most definitely not going to report to outsiders. So as managers, I think it is important to know that when you encourage this strong sense of belonging and identity identification with the team or with the organization, you should pay more attention to the fact that certain bad behaviors might not be flushed out. Yeah, and that's a good takeaway from this, isn't it? People need to pay attention to this stuff, that it might be really good for the resilience of your organisation if you're encouraging this strong sense of belonging and identity, but also you're creating this context whereby people are less likely to to talk about anything negative. So there has to be some kind of mechanism for doing that, or maybe not a mechanism, but there has to be some feeling of safety around people being able to speak out if they need to. So there's a takeaway for business leaders about creating the right kind of culture where people can speak up if they see something they think might be a bit dodgy or that makes them feel uncomfortable. So I think there are two takeaways that are general to businesses and then one that is specific to this uh, context. The first is that, yes, when your team is it has this like strong cohesion and strong identity, mechanisms of, of safe reporting are very important. Uh, and that comes often just by role models. We have Randall Peterson uh, in OB who does a lot of uh, uh, research on this. So that's one way of establishing a culture in which people feel safe to complain. But also, I think it's uh, you need to realize that you might need to pay more attention to things that are happening in these groups and that they don't diverge so strongly from what expected behavior is. And that's the, that's the takeaway that is important for this specific context. Because if we go back to the context of care homes and neglect and abuse and health and safety violations and just put ourselves in our shoes. We have this data set, we have this finding, and it is we received the first round revision end of April 2020. There's nothing more salient than care homes and the health and safety in care homes. So the the takeaway to this specific context is that random inspections are extremely effective. And if you have groups of firms or organizations that have fewer complaints, it might be caused, not because they behave better, but because people actually are less likely to complain about. As a regulator, you need to look for these groups of organizations uh, where you see less misconduct. And that's, you should probably try to pay attention to that. In your own experience in the Israeli Air Force, what was the culture like there? I do know from my own experience in the Israeli Air Force that the culture of accepting and encouraging the admitting of mistakes is hugely important. So after every flight, every flight, we would land and go into the briefing room and debrief. And in the debrief, you were expected to say what went well, but also what went wrong. And the captain would always start and they would always start talking about what they did that would need improvement. And it was very honest and it was uh, very frank. And then you'd hear the co-pilot adding a few of his or her own mistakes or uh, uh, things they could do better and then talking about some other stuff that the captain would have done better and the loadmaster. And that created this culture where 
Um, admitting to mistakes is not a weakness, it's a strength. Uh, so I've not studied this in business, but it works very well, at least in the small context of the Israeli Air Force. I'm just wondering, before we wrap up, if you have any other thoughts for business leaders, any tips on how to sort of get the culture right and avoid these sorts of big disasters? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to venture outside a little outside of my research, but not too far. I think that the way we think about ethics and right and wrong, what is right and appropriate, we think of it in a way that oversimplifies two important points. First, we think of individuals and not of groups of individuals. So uh, we think of incentives. And uh, if you think of the Wells Fargo scandal, the investigation was what were the incentives of bankers to open multiple bank accounts? Well, the bankers received 3% bonus, I think. It was, it was very small. Right? Uh, so we tend to think it at the individual level and not at the group level. And the second simplification, which I, I think is very consequential, is that we tend to apply today's norms and values to behaviors that happened in the past. And by doing that, we willfully ignore the fact that 20 years ago, people lived in a normative system that was very different to the one we live in today. And so, of course, people should be held to the standards of the day, but your 20-year-younger self should not be held to the standards of today in the same way that you should not be held to the standards that would prevail 20 years from now. And these are ways I see the research progressing, looking at groups of people, which is what a little bit of what my work does and my colleagues uh, uh, who study this. Um, and looking at the evolution of bad behavior. So instead of looking at things that are right and wrong, looking at things that are in the gray area or, or what we call liminal behaviors, behaviors that are neither clearly right, but not clearly wrongful. Yeah. Well, no doubt that's going to be a very fruitful, rich area to do some further research into. I think that in, in the business context, in a competitive environment, many of the decisions that managers take are aggressive, competitive, strong. You can put whichever label you want on it, but they end up being very liminal. Should I recognize an expense now or tomorrow or yesterday when I received the money, when I signed the invoice? These are decisions that could benefit the organization, might be wrongful tomorrow, but they're not wrongful today. And when you're in a highly competitive environment, you make as a manager, you make decisions that are in the gray zone on a daily basis, I think. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's been really fascinating hearing you elucidate some of these issues. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you'll do next in this endlessly fascinating subject of moral philosophy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Kathy. It's been wonderful chatting to you. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips, tools and news for our alumni direct to your inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating to help new listeners find us. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.